0: Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And this week, Jasmine will be speaking with Lisa Dumas, who is the founder of Black, Brown, and Diverse Plant-Based People for Equity, and is working to eliminate some of the cultural stigmas and accessibility barriers for multicultural consumers in incorporating vegan foods into their diets. Such a great project. And guess where she's based? Uh, Where could it be? Where could it be? Someplace fabulous, I bet. (laughs)
1: It's in Rochester. (laughs) Like I got a press release for this and I was like, wow, this is so cool. And then I get, it's in Rochester. And I was like, what? So I'm so, I'm very very exciting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Actually, I have just a a preview. I have a little story in uh, Rising Anxieties this week that is also in Rochester. So this is a very local episode this week. Uh, It's also... I think we should just start off acknowledging a really, really sad week in both of our lives, of course, especially in Jasmine's uh, and just a really, really tough time. And I just want to acknowledge that. And you can tell us uh, what happened. But I also would like you, if you're willing to, to do a reading from the beautiful substack you did to memorialize your beloved dog, Birdie, who died this week.
1: Yeah, it's always uh, very difficult difficult when you do a weekly podcast to know how you're going to show up. And I mean, I think that our listeners know by now that we show up as ourselves and we come on the air anyway, and I'm just doing my best to get through this. Birdie died very suddenly and was my soulmate dog with me 24 seven. And in fact, I'm recording this in my home office, which is also my studio, and i'm as soon as we finish recording going to leave and rec- and just work on my laptop in the living room because bertie was with me in the office all the time and and was constantly in the background of my interviews and and probably for the next couple months will be referenced as these interviews have already been recorded and frequently people like notice her in the back uh you know halfway through so i will in an effort to save myself from needing to come up with words uh, right now, I will read the Substack. And thank you for that. It is my newsletter. That's a Substack. It's jasminesinger.substack.com. And I called it The Saddest. And this will be about 10 minutes. The Saddest. Today, we said goodbye to our sweet birdie. This is not a message I thought I'd write anytime soon. We are dizzy and delirious. It doesn't seem real. We were not prepared. We lost our birdie this morning very suddenly. She was a soulmate. We are devastated. Since Moore and I adopted her two and a half years ago when birdie was 13, this little doggy and I have been completely inseparable. Some chihuahuas choose a person and that person becomes their magnet. Being Bertie's person has been the most meaningful role I've ever played. I am completely at a loss as to how this happened so quickly. Bertie had been completely stable, even though she suffered from a very bad heart murmur. She was so stable that her cardiologist said we could put off her next visit. Nothing was changing with her health. Nothing was worsening. But she was a delicate, sensitive doggy, which we knew. On Saturday, our incredible vet came over. We use a home visit vet for a standard checkup for Bertie, George dog, and Stella Cat. They drew some blood from Bertie for a regular senior panel, and they had a hard time finding a vein, which was uncomfortable for her. They kept poking. They also expressed her anal glands, which had always been an issue for her, and though she has always hated getting that done, she was much more comfortable afterward. Nothing else notable happened during the visit. They cut her nails and just checked her in general. Her blood work came back picture perfect. And yet, the stress from the vet visit got to her more than she let on. Shortly after the vet left, I noticed Bertie wasn't acting like herself. She was very subdued and at one point flopped over on the couch and didn't right herself. We took her outside and she could hardly use her legs. We took her back inside and she threw up. We alerted our vet as to what was happening and all agreed to just keep an eye on her. A few hours later, I was becoming increasingly concerned. Her breathing started to become very fast and she couldn't get a full breath. So we took her to the emergency vet and after just one glance, she was treated as the most urgent. But the ultrasound and x-ray didn't show anything. So at 1 a.m., they returned her to us. On Sunday morning, I tried to get in touch with her cardiologist as we were told it was likely a heart issue. We were able to get an emergency visit with our cardiologist for Monday, today, at a location about two hours away. Sunday night, last night, Birdie kept getting worse and worse. Her breathing was labored and she was mostly limp. Our appointment could not come fast enough. So on Monday morning today, instead of waiting to take her to the cardiologist, we took her back to the emergency vet. By the time we got there, she was clearly having a neurological event. Her legs were basically stuck straight out and her head was bent back. She was hardly responsive. They took her into triage and came back to tell us what we pretty much already knew by then. She wouldn't be able to continue to breathe on her own, and her state was extremely unlikely to be reversible. We made the heartbreaking decision to let her go. It was not a decision I thought we'd have to make anytime soon. Everything led us to believe that she'd likely make it to around 17. That's what we hoped for, and that's what seemed realistic. There are no words to make sense of this, but I will say this. When people find out that Moore and I have adopted two seniors, Sweet George is still with us, and we already had a senior dog, our darling Lucy left us earlier this year, they would immediately say, I could never do that. What I'm sure they meant is that it would be too heartbreaking to have a dog for such a relatively short amount of time and then quickly be thrust into the oftentimes heart-wrenching end-of-life care. I've thought about that a lot. And of course, I can see what they mean. There's nothing I wish more today than for Birdie and I to have had many more years together. Now, I am at least months away from being able to make sense of any of this, or maybe I'll never make sense of it, but I do know this. The entire time we had Birdie, it was the abundance and joy I was focused on. It was the vitality, the silliness, and the great big love. Birdie and I brought each other so much adoration, comfort, and connection that it's hard to believe she hasn't been with me my whole life. I think maybe she has somehow. It was never the pending loss I was thinking about when she'd do the backstroke on the rug each night after her walk, or take long walks with me every morning when we lived in West Hollywood, or wedge herself between me and the side of the couch whenever I'd do my early morning writing. It was her presence not her potential absence that filled our days and nights. My memories of her still feel tangible, like they're right there and I can somehow reach them if I try hard enough. I blink and there we are, navigating a socially distant handoff in a parking lot in March, 2020, the day Birdie became ours. That night, we put her in the doggy bed beside our human bed. Within five seconds, she ran up the tiny stairs and made her way in between me and Moore, pawing at the blanket until I lifted it up so she could nestle between us where she has slept for the past two and a half years. I blink. Birdie is on my outstretched legs on the small patio of our apartment, staying with me for hours as I did my work under that hot LA sun. It was soon after that the storefronts in my city were literally boarded up because of the threat of riots, and our city's curfew was set for 4 p.m., forcing the dogs to do their business in our building's courtyard. We snuggled extra close on those nights. I blink. We are moving back to the East Coast, spending our days in a rented RV, traveling from West Hollywood to New York's Catskills. Then, we're all walking in the woods, Lucy and Bertie spending so much time sniffing around that we made it about an eighth of the trail before having to turn around before it got dark. I blink. We're all taking real estate reconnaissance trips up to Rochester, the dogs in the backseat dog bed, happier than ever about the long days on the road. Then, we found a new home we moved in. Bertie spent those first weeks in a sling attached to me. Before long, she developed her routine— This is when she does the backstroke. This is when she eats. This is when she gets the zoomies. This is when she barks at the cat. This is when she insists I pet her with both hands. This is when, how, and where we sleep. This, this, this is how we live and how we love. Her adamance about being petted when it was time was hilariously demanding. It reminds me of a time I was babysitting my niece when she was about four. I was caught up in some personal drama paying more attention to my phone than to her. She came into the room I was in, furiously crossed her arms, and reprimanded me. Auntie Jasmine, you're going to waste all of our time together. She was right. I put down my phone. I was back in the moment. Bertie was similarly demanding, always insisting I remain firmly in the moment with her. Cuddling her, petting her, loving her with my whole self. And so I didn't have much time to focus on the possibility that one day, her loss would break my heart. I get it. I do. When people say they can't adopt a senior. To be totally honest, I'm not entirely sure I'll do it again. But my time with Bertie was full, all-consuming, and created enough love to fill the universe. As I type this from my backyard, by my hammock that just yesterday I stayed in all afternoon with Bertie on my chest, my sweet old George dog is staring up at me, giving and receiving love in his own sweet and subtle way. There is no world where I could possibly understand not having these old darlings. There is no moment I won't cherish. And today, on this day that I could not have predicted in a million years, Moore and I are heartbroken. Bertie was my very best friend. We were each other's emotional support animals. Our love was as powerful as it comes. And her loss has left me bereft but I know that our connection was a gift of epic proportions, thanks partly to the lesson my niece taught me all those years ago. With Bertie, I was always firmly planted in the moment. Today, I feel like the saddest person in the world, but also the luckiest. As my grandmother, who was twice widowed, used to say, I don't think I lost them, I think I had them. I had Bertie. She had me. And her connection with Moore, though different, was also incredibly profound, laced with a deep care, affection, and silliness that brings on a whole different layer of grief. Because when we see those around us mourning, it cracks us in an entirely different place. And so my heart breaks for Moore because that is its own great big loss. And for George Dog, who spent much of the past two and a half years sleeping curled up with his sister, and on some level, my heart breaks for Stella Cat, whose favorite pastime has been playfully and perhaps a little maniacally bopping her sister Birdie. George, you'd better get ready, buddy. Now, I am an atheist, but I am also spiritual and, to an extent, witchy. The only way I got through the great big loss of my grandma, another soulmate, was by deciding she was with me at all times. I don't mean with me like some ghost would be, but with me as in, I feel her. I feel her worldview informing mine. I feel myself trying to live up to her values, her generosity, her kindness. It is the only way I know how to get through loss. And so that is how I will get through this. Bertie taught me about unconditional love in a way I'd never experienced. I am better for that, and I believe Bertie was too. She knew when to be demanding when she had a need, how to effectively communicate everything from dissatisfaction to deep affection, and what it looks like to be truly devoted. She was an empath, an explorer, and a truly perfect companion. She was as cute as she was smart, and even though she was deaf and mostly blind, she always knew how to get to where she wanted to go. I will miss her when I sleep, when I work, when I write, when I get ready in the morning— and when I come home from being out. For the rest of my life, I am certain I will think of her every single day. Eventually, the tears will transform to smiles and I will continue to feel Birdie in the sun, in the trees, and in the lake. Two and a half years ago, she came into my heart and even though she's gone, she will remain there forever. Birdie, thank you for being ours.
0: Well, it's really beautiful. It's a beautiful tribute. Thanks for sharing it with us. like, compared to the grief that you guys are, are experiencing, I, I don't even want to talk about mine in that in that way. But I think we should remember how far our dogs reach because I really miss her too. I loved that dog. She would, when I walked in your house, she would... uh she would not know who it was and she would be a little like you know she was chawa so she would be a little like Wah. and then she, i would put my hand out and she would smell me and she, and immediately her whole aspect would change she knew it was me her little tail would wag so yeah we all lost somebody special
1: i mean the day on saturday after the vet visit i was like something's going on with birdie more and i had tickets to this like boat tour for <laughs> and i was like well i you know, the vet just said, just let her rest, keep an eye on her. So you came over and stayed with her and she just slept the whole time. She was, she was more or less fine. And then I came home and I just was like, "Mm, something's up with her, but I'm glad you were able to spend that last little bit of time with her.
0: I am as well. I felt like, you know, maybe she would have gotten a little scared,
1: Yeah. even though I
0: couldn't tell she wasn't feeling well. She probably really wasn't by then. So that makes me, yeah, makes it's me just,
1: happy. Honestly, this was sort of my worst nightmare. I, I, uh, I, I recognize that she was old, but genuinely she was fine. Like vitality, vitality and, and, and dogginess and like her blood work was perfect and her heart condition wasn't getting worse. And, you know, it's just, I think we just have to, I, I don't really know.
0: Yeah, I don't think any of us know. Like, it's always just well. Anyway, let's let's move on because there is something to move on to, and it's not the best time of year for this to be happening this year. But it is always a really important day for you, and important day for our hen house, and that's your birthday, which is which is coming up. And I I know this year it's a little different, but but let's talk about it a little because you always do make a big deal about your birthday, but sometimes in different ways.
1: Well, so. Thank you. My, today, it, we're this is airing on October 29th and my birthday is October 30th. So my birthday is tomorrow at the time you're listening to this since I'm sure everyone listens immediately. And yeah, you know, like I love birthdays. I love markers in time. I love your birthday. I love whoever's listening to this. I love your birthday. I love these sort of clean slates we get to create. We've always joked that my birthday kicks off the holiday season. I love the holiday season. Um, So it is a very sad birthday for me this year, but I'm going to continue on with the plans that I made. And just if I'm going to be fucking sad during them, I'm going to be fucking sad during them. Uh, And it is, as you mentioned, an important time for our hen house because my birthday is always the kickoff of our end of year fundraising, where we do the vast majority of our fundraising for the year as you know our henhouse is a nonprofit, and so we need to raise the money to keep going and we do that through a mix of uh grants and personal donations think of it like pbs or npr which is a similar we're a similar model as 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 them and a little smaller
0: just a tiny bit smaller
1: tiny bit yeah (laughs) <laughs> but I, I do like to mention PBS and NPR because people sometimes are confused as to why a podcast would be a nonprofit. And I'm like, you yeah. actually listen to other podcasts that are part of a nonprofit. So between now and the end of the year, all donations that you make as our listeners will be tripled dollar for dollar up to $20,000. And that's thanks to a group of incredible people who are we call our barnyard benefactors who it's a small group of people they collectively they collectively pool $20,000 and that is matched by you hopefully our listeners our general public our flock members and so any donation you make will be matched and that means it will be $40,000 that is matched by an- another donor so it's a triple match
0: equaling $60,000 total. So it's a pretty big deal. Uh, I just want to apologize for the fact that we I we understand we have the most complicated fundraising apparatus in in the world. But the basic the basic point is, is if you donate money, we're going to get even more money uh, at this time of year and and that's how we keep going all year long.
1: And for the like for the longest time we were like is this too complicated and you know cuz fundraising shouldn't be presented in a complicated way. But honestly, like we've been doing this for so many years and it it, every year is how it works for us. So thank you for supporting our efforts. I know that if you're listening to this, media is important to you. Changing the world for animals is important to you. If you are a flock member, please consider renewing. If you're able to renew at a higher level, that would be amazing. I will say that we are in the process of producing some ethically sourced, absolutely stunning brass pins with the Our Hen House logo. And we're going to be sending them to anyone who has donated $250 or more. So if you would like a brass pin, please consider making a donation of $250. But if you're able to make a smaller donation, that is wonderful too. Our flock membership is $100 for a year or or a monthly donation of $10 a month, but $100 a year between now and the end of the year will make a bigger difference for us. And if you're only able to donate like $10, we absolutely love that too. And we so appreciate you. And if you're not able to donate, totally understandable. Times are hard. Feel free to share this podcast, leave a friendly review. Whatever you can do to support our efforts to change the world for animals is greatly appreciated.
0: Certainly is. And uh, it would just really, really mean a lot to us right at this point to be able to make this match and and keep going another year. There is one more thing I wanted to talk about. Well, actually, there's a couple of more things I wanted to talk about. But one is kind of this weird thing, but it's this expression I came across. and I just thought it was a really good week. I've been putting off talking about it for a few weeks. It was a really good point to talk about. And that, that is a, it's an expression in Irish. It's Evenus Cree. And I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but if you've ever seen Irish or, or Irish Gaelic um, written, you know, it has like a million letters in in it that you don't know how to pronounce, but I think it's Evenus Cree. and. It basically means gladness of heart. That's the translation. But I think from what I've read about it, it means so much more for that. And I've really been clinging to this idea. It means not happiness or not everyday happiness, which is also important, but kind of a deep-hearted, deep-in-your-heart kind of joy in the in, in life. And And it's really, I find it really hard to remember to try to feel that in days of grief as as you are right now and and so many people are and in days of fear as so many of us are and you know with the election coming up and the and climate change and and just the everyday knowledge we all live with of what's happening to animals it really doesn't feel right to feel joyful that just doesn't sound right but for me this is a different kind of joy or i try to make it a different kind of joy, just deep in your heart to feel that goodness. And so I just wanted to share it with people and maybe share it with you today as, as just something to remember. Like somewhere in you, even kri, Cree, somewhere in you, inside you, is this spark of joy. And this is not a spiritual thing or, a, um, well, I guess maybe a little spiritual, but it's not a religious thing at all. It does or it doesn't have to be. For for people who are religious, I would imagine there's a religious aspect to it. But for people who aren't, I think this is also accessible. Just just finding like as I said, the the, the translation is gladness of heart. That's not a very good translation, but try to hang on to it.
1: Well, I first of all, this phrase is impossible to spell unless you're familiar with the language. So I think we should put it, we'll put it in the show notes spelled correctly, because you should have seen the way I tried to spell it when you first said it. It was hilarious. And secondly, I appreciate that you're bringing this up, especially this week of all weeks for me personally. And I I like the idea of opting into joy. I often talk about opting into hope, but I, I think opting into joyful moments, you know, even if they're also melancholic, Is that a word? Melancholic.
0: I believe it is.
1: Even if they're also melancholic, that it's okay. You know, like this is what it means to feel and love and lose and and be in the moment and and I like it.
0: Yeah, I think this kind of joy, if that's the right word for it. Can coexist with all these other feelings, such as grief and and sadness. And it, it's not separate. It's not an alternate. It's not. Oh, I'm either happy or sad. It's this is something that can always be there. This spark of of joy that exists in spite of all everything else that's going on. And sometimes I find hope. As I've discussed a million times on this podcast, it's a little elusive, <laughs> like a little, I like like I don't feel like I can rely on it all the time. But this feels more like something I can rely on. Anyway, I don't know whether any of that made sense at all. But I like it. As long as you like it, who cares? Well, actually, we do care what you all think. We really do. Before we get to our interview, I mentioned I have one more thing, and this is actually an announcement that we received from Cruelty Free International, and I particularly wanted to not let it pass by because of my beloved Fox and Eugene, one of whom you may have heard meowing throughout this podcast (laughs) because he's driving me nuts. But um, it is October 29th, the day this podcast goes up, National Cat Day, uh, so happy yeah. National Cat Day, and and Cruelty Free International. Obviously, they have they they don't want to just celebrate National Cat Day, but they want to do something helpful for cats. And it is, of course, a day to encourage cat adoption and learn more about the ways to improve the lives of cats. And they want to emphasize this federal bill that is currently apparently gaining some attention in Congress. And it aims to ensure that cats who are used in laboratories, and there are a lot of them, sadly, 18,000 used in experiments in the United States every year. Uh, they want to make sure that like some recent progress that's been made for other animals, on the, uh, that they have a chance to find their forever homes across the country. So even when cats and other animals survive an experiment, they're often killed and discarded if they are considered no longer useful to the laboratory when they in- could instead be released for adoption into loving homes. So this companion animal release from experiments act, which has been championed by California Congressman Tody Cardenas, could ensure that cats, as well as dogs and rabbits, are put up for adoption rather than killed when no longer wanted for experiments in laboratories that receive taxpayer funding from the National Institutes of Health. As I mentioned, the, there's been some progress on this in, in various states, but this would be a federal bill, and it would re- also be covering dogs and rabbits. But of course, today we're we're talking about the cats. And if Congressman Cardenas said, it's simple. If a research facility uses pets for research, then they must work to find them homes. And nobody who works for Cruelty Free International is ignoring the fact that we want it all to end. We, you know, this is this is a stopgap, but a really, really important one and something that we might be able to pull off now. So you can advance the CARE Act by contacting your representative and asking them to become a co-sponsor of the bill. Representatives can be contacted at bit.ly slash CARE Act 22. Or you can also go to the Cruelty Free International website and, and check out more information about this. All right. We'll put in the show notes too. Yeah. And the other thing I'm just going to remind you once again, if you're not registered to vote, register to vote, register to vote, register to vote. Even if you're a cat. even <laughs> Register your cat to vote. Don't tell them I said that. And you can find out more information on that in the show notes as well. All right, time for the interview? I think so, because this is a great interview. You've been putting up with listening to us, though we did get to listen to Jasmine's beautiful tribute, so that's okay. Lisa Dumas, began her career working in marketing and communications for a diversity consulting firm, The Winters Group. She is presently a freelance journalist and editor. And in June of this year, she created Black, Brown, and Diverse Plant-Based People for Equity, Inc. And she is also the founder of the Facebook group, Black, Brown, and Diverse Vegans. This is a great interview with a very imaginative and, and progressive approach to getting more people to consider veganism. So I am very happy to say, let's get to that interview now.
1: Hey everyone, Jasmine here. Did you know that you can dedicate a podcast episode to someone you love? Cool, right? For $250, you can honor a loved one, human or non, and at the same time support our hen house's efforts to change the world for animals. You can either record a 30-second special message that we'll play on the air, we'll just need an MP3 file, or you can send us the text you want recorded and we'll record it for you. To dedicate a podcast episode, simply let us know by emailing communications at ourhenhouse.org. And thank you so much for your support. By the way, since this is $250, it will automatically make you a flock member. If you have any questions about that, let us know in your email. Can't wait to hear from you. Welcome to our hen house, Lisa. Hi,
2: Jasmine. So nice to be with you today.
1: I'm very excited to talk to you. I have to tell you, when I heard about your organization, I was like, "Oh my gosh, this sounds amazing." And then I kept reading and I realized you were in Rochester, and mm-hmm. I think I might have started jumping up and down. I am fairly new to Rochester. Like I've been here for a year and I just I we have we have to become best friends is basically the point of what I'm saying, if that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. Well, then I think that we don't need to go on. We've I've accomplished everything I've wanted to. All right, I'm kidding. I have a lot of questions. Okay, let's start off by talking about the problem as you see it, and then we'll get into some of the solutions that you're pursuing. So to start, Lisa, what are some of the barriers that underserved communities face in obtaining healthy plant-based foods?
2: Well, The problem with Rochester, so you and I are both in Rochester, like you were just saying, is that there is a high level of poverty here. So when you have high levels of poverty in underserved communities, um, which are mostly black and brown communities, there are a lot of negative outcomes, such as lack of access to you know, healthy foods and information about health and wellness. And in Rochester in particular, which you probably also saw from some information that I sent, it's it's surprising because it's the home of, of Wagmans, which is a large supermarket chain, one of the largest in the country yet they're, we're just surrounded by food deserts. So not only can you not get to plant-based items, you can't really get to any items other than whatever's overpriced in your corner store or your local family dollar store. Dollar stores are on every corner and you have to try to make your way out to the suburbs to get to a mm. natural grocery store. So those are just some of the, the basic problems.
1: I have so many questions. I want to ask about Wegmans, but I'll hold off for a second. What's his research show about the willingness of people in these communities to shift their diets in a plant-based direction if it is made more accessible?
2: Research does show that people are open to it and actually um, diverse groups of people they want to eat more healthy and they're, they want to shift their diets, but there's a certain stigma surrounding in their communities, which can hold them back. And there's also that lack of access that we're talking about and also affordability that ties into many other things and even ties into plant-based companies and foods you know, hopefully when they're being able to bring their price down. So to me, it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of a complex issue. But it's a combination of things that can keep people from being able to actually access those items, even if
1: they want to. Mm, so true. Oh, there's a lot going on here. And it's 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 issues that I think a lot of people, even vegans, don't really think about nearly as much as it should be not only thought about, but directly addressed you've cited research which shows that more than half of latinx and black respondents strongly or somewhat agree that there is a stigma in their culture around people who eat plant-based foods have you found this to be the case and If so, how do you overcome it? I mean, that's a big question. Like I'm basically asking you to solve everything.
2: (laughs) Right. If only I could. Yeah, I definitely find that to be the case. I have to approach it very specifically and not in a pushy kind of way. Also understanding when people might say, you know, I might want to eat this or I might wanna, but I need to still be able to have bacon or something like, you know, because and certain things are staples in certain communities. So I like to approach it by just saying, you know, maybe even trying meatless Monday, you know, or or telling people that there are things that are accidentally vegan that they're eating that may, they might eat, not even know that are vegan, like Oreos. So you you know you're not with the Captain Crunch cereals are vegan. And if you approach it in that way, then people realize that they don't have to lose out on things that they like, which is something that people often think. I think that's with anybody when it comes to veganism as well
1: totally true yeah and it 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 is of course the opposite it's like a very abundant way of eating but it does you know i'm i'm saying that also from a place of privilege i'm saying that in an area that is not underserved and i am not part of an underserved community how would you say plant based food companies are failing these communities
2: oh goodness wow <laughs> I have many opinions, Jasper.
1: I love it. I I love it. Let's bring it.
2: I just, I think I'll just kind of start whatever comes to my brain. Like in a basic supermarket, say you have organic produce. I know we need to use chemicals while they use chemicals when things are not organic so that they can make more and have more for people for the large population that we have globally in this country whatever but if things are better for you organically i don't understand why it's not just made that way we have so many um and in science today in my opinion they could probably come up with something that would still allow them to have the crops grow and be abundant for everyone without poisoning people and when it comes to plant-based food companies i mean Even I, who may not live in, you know, real abject poverty, you know, I look at some of these items and I just think that the prices are high. And I would think that if you would lower your prices and come down, that that would, that difference would make up in the quantity that you're able to sell. So I don't understand, you know, because they are high and now with meat prices going up there should be a switch inevitably to more plant-based items on a broad scale anyway. And it should, and I don't know if I'm correct about this, but cost less to make if you're not using animal products. So why is it that they are so high? I mean, if they were cheaper because that's another thing that can also be a barrier. I don't wanna offend anyone, but I sometimes get a little bit, you know, annoyed at things like that. And I even think about organizations like PETA because I wish that PETA would spread their message in these communities as well. like I, And I see them talking about animal rights and things like that, but I don't think that they necessarily get to those communities either. So I think people have to make a more concerted effort to reach people in those ways. I don't necessarily know that that's being done.
1: Yeah. I think we're on the same page in a lot of ways with what you just said. It's
2: it's like you said, though, you don't think about it, though. Like you were saying, coming from a privileged place or another place. Yeah. Even I, in going into this thinking about diverse populations, did not think about all diverse populations. I mean, I just joined a deaf vegan group In Rochester on Facebook recently and then I thought about that and I said well okay so I have another group and I posted how to say the word vegan in American Sign Language because I never even thought of that as being part of diversity and then I went and looked on YouTube and saw that there's a blind vegan with the YouTube page and she shows how she makes all of her foods and things so you know it can even branch out into all other areas that we don't always think about you know.
1: By the way, we do offer written transcripts of our interviews. So be sure to share the written transcript of this with that Facebook group because they would probably really appreciate everything you're saying. So I want to go back to Captain Crunch for a second because you just mentioned it. And of course, we all know that vegan foods aren't always healthy. I would say the vast majority of people listening to this, including myself, are motivated by ethics, not by health. And, But we know that, of course, it's always good to cut out meat, dairy, and eggs. But when you focus your messaging on health, how do you deal with vegan junk food?
2: To me, right now, when you're talking about these communities that you want to encourage to switch, most people are intelligent people. And everyone knows that fruits and vegetables are good for you. I mean, I can remember being a kid and hearing you had to get that five servings of fruits and vegetables every day, and I would think to myself, "How in the heck am I supposed to get five servings of fruits and vegetables with all the other stuff I'm eating?" But little did we know that that was all we should have probably been eating, you know. Right. So, uh, so most people already know that, but to get them to say to make the switch, they need to know that they're, it's not going to be as difficult as they may think. Like, oh, I just have to give up everything, you know, everything I've ever loved. And, In the communities that I'm talking about, also, when you don't have those grocery stores, when you only have a family dollar, if you're going to go in there and get some cereal, you want to get the one that's going to be the best choice. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to let people know those things, even though it it may seem like junk food, but it's still a healthier alternative. And I think in this type of situation, you have to approach it that way.
1: Yeah, I think that's really true. You mentioned Rochester at the beginning. You mentioned Wegmans. I want to go back to that. I know that you're starting a program in Rochester that you hope to take nationwide. And I do want to talk about those plans. But first, let's go back to Rochester. What do you think Rochester needs most? And what is keeping it from getting there? Oh, boy. (laughs) I know. I'm Um, sorry. I should have warned you to have an extra cup of coffee. It's
2: just the problems are so vast here. I work in journalism and I, uh, up until a few years ago, I was actually covering a lot of things in the city and I became really kind of disenchanted with the whole thing because I was kind of seeing it from a viewpoint where I was needing to stay objective because I was news writing. But I had all these opinions because I would see um, when it comes to politics. I believe, first of all, all politics are local. You need to have the right people in place. Um, Rochester has a lot of people that get in there and stay in there, but they're not really change agents. So Rochester from the 1960s there was an event that's um, it been documented, there was a documentary made called The Riots of 64, because during the civil rights movement, Rochester was the first city in the north that needed to have the National Guard called to it because of race riots. So when I learned about this, I saw the neighborhoods that were involved in this, the same underserved communities um, where there was systemic racism, discrimination, are the same communities that are having these problems today. So therefore, We need to figure out why these communities are still having these problems. What we can do to change that. I think they need to change the communities. The neighborhoods in Rochester do not work the way they're set up. There's become concentrated poverty within the city. Um, There was also a white flight during the 60s and 70s where whites moved to the suburbs. They took their votes with them. And so then the people in the city became neglected. So it's all just part of this sad cycle that has happened in many places around the country. And Mm -hmm. um, in order to change that, you have to have people that can get in there and think outside the box. I mean... You, Rochester has something called the Rochester-Monroe County Poverty Initiative, it's called R, R-MAPI, and oh, Ro- Rochester-Monroe County Anti-Poverty Initiative, and for a long time they couldn't figure it out, Governor Cuomo gave them a bunch of money before he stepped out of office a, back a few years ago when I was covering it, and now they've got new leadership, and I did see the last thing I saw was that they decided to test out some universal basic income, which a new incoming mayor has also decided to do. But you've got to think about things like that in order to help people get the lift that they need. So I could go on for days. <laughs> you just stop me whenever you want. But, but there are many things that's complex, like I was saying, that you could do in the city. But you need people that are, that are really going to be change agents, not people that are going to sit there and you have the same problems for 10, 20, 30 years. You you
1: mentioned you were a journalist. Were were you with WXXI or or somewhere else? Yeah,
2: I, I was doing like some freelance for a small local paper. They were they were minority owned, and they were basically trying to cover the issues in these areas. And then I started going in and doing a little bit more full time editing. I hesitate to say their mention their name because, you know, in some ways they were actually part of the problem because I. I became more aware of sometimes how things can go on behind the scenes or not go on (laughs) just based on politics of news right? politics of journalism even, um, which is part of what I became disenchanted with. Mm -hmm. And it's different when you're covering um, things locally that involve politics and people and you know, people are connected, but I, I did that for about four years, and I also stepped away from it now for about the past few years. But I even stopped looking at the news. not just because of the pandemic, but because it can become frustrating when you see that things are not getting done, maybe why they're not getting done, who cares, who doesn't, who appears to care, who doesn't. <laughs> you know, it's complex.
1: <laughs> the reason I went on that tangent is because I find that fascinating, like, with writers, journalists, and also artists or photographers, like war photographers, for example, at what point are we just sort of reporting on what's going on? And at what point do we step in and make a difference or state state a claim? Or is it making a difference? Is it stating an opinion to just be there, you know, at the crossfire, reporting on the story or photographing the story? That's something that rattles around my head a lot. And I think it's really fascinating that you were like, no, I need to be at the forefront of making change here. I can't just be reporting on it.
2: Yeah, and it's kind of funny because um, when you were to school for journalism, also when I went to print journalism, they pounded into your head to be objective, especially for news writing. You know, you keep your opinion out of it. It's like journalism 101. And so I had done it for a very long time. <laughs> And then I realized all of a sudden that I, wait, I have an opinion. In fact, I have many opinions, you know what I mean? And so you get to a point, I think, where you just you're kind of, you have to make decisions, you know, about what you want to do, what you want your life to mean and be. This is something that I believe in. So I just decided that I would rather spend my time doing something that I believe in and making a difference rather than doing something that could possibly make a difference, but is not having the impact that maybe it could
1: or should. Yeah, no, I totally hear that. Okay, I want to talk about Wegmans, but for our listeners who aren't in Rochester, I, I I think that this is relevant to you too. I think this is relevant to everyone because we all have a Wegmans. Maybe it's not a Wegmans, but it's a Whole Foods or maybe it's a different grocery store. I have heard a bit here and there about the issues here where, where Wegmans is not in areas where underserved communities can get to. And I've heard some other issues, too. But you're very much more in the know, too. So do you mind explaining to our listeners what's going on here?
2: Well, I can't tell you exactly what's going on, because I don't know what Wegmans thinking is. But I can tell you that they used to have a couple of stores in the city. They used to have one on Mount Hope, where College Avenue is. Uh, College Town is now. It's it's near University, where there are lots of shops and stores. That's businesses. where I live. <laughs> okay, yeah, you know, they used to have one there. They redeveloped it. It was on Mount Hope Avenue. I remember because it was convenient for me because I I used to live near there. Back mm-hmm. then there was one I think on a, a place called uh, Street called Dewey Avenue, which is now a Price Right, I think, which is one of the few locations where it's a small grocery store in the city, but. And I read in the Democrat Chronicle at some point that Wegmans had plans to expand within the city, but they scrapped it. So my guess is, and I'm just going to tie it to a short story, if I can tell you really quick. I would love that. Yeah. I went to, um, like, the service light came out of my car. So someone said to me, well, you could just go to, like, one of these local auto places. And we have a place called AutoZone, ManZone. And he said, they'll plug in this little machine and tell you what it means. And he said, they do it for your charge. So I said, okay. I was on a street called Lyle Avenue in the city of Rochester, which is a very neglected I would say probably problem area, people would call it. There's a a car shop that I would go to there sometimes as well. So anyways, I go to a non-husband because I pass right by there that this person told me to go to. I stop there. I say, so do you have this machine? I explain whatever. And the guy says, no, we don't have one here because we cannot have that machine because of the demographic in the area. So I said, okay. He said, but my sister location just past Long Pond Road. They can do it for you there. I said, Long Pond Road, and I don't know if you know where that is, but it's far away yeah. going go to a suburb called Greece, basically. I said, oh my goodness. So I said, what about the one on Clinton Avenue, another area in the city? He said, no, nope, same thing there. We can't have it there because of the demographic in the city. I said, oh my goodness, So well, this is just a shame. So basically, instead of Figuring out a way to find out what the problem is, is why you can't have a simple machine that you can take outside and plug into someone's car for this service. I have to drive to the suburbs. So basically, to me, it's the same thing because of the demographic, probably where wagons are located. Probably if they had problems, they said, we're just going to go out to the suburbs. So you have to travel very far to get these basic services that other people can just have whenever they need them. So to me, it's like there's a larger issue there. Like, why not fix the problem or focus on the problem in the city so that you can have your store there so that I can get this service so that other people who can get this service there may not be inconvenienced like I was that day as well. Wegmans, they may have the problem with theft or, you know, losing their assets or whatever it may be. I mean, I'm sure they would have insurance, first of all. But secondly, now when I go to the Wegmans and Gates, which is straight out that same road, Lyle Avenue. You go out of here another place called Gates, New York. I see police standing there at the door, armed police as though well, they're on duty. So the problems, if you do that, are not going to stay in the city. The city's going to deteriorate as it has, but they're going to go right out there down that road and they're going to be at that weapons anyway. So to me, it makes more sense to... Fix the problems in the city, rather than just try to move and avoid them. Because when you avoid or try to avoid a problem, it doesn't go away. It's still mm-hmm. there. It gets worse, and it's not probably going to make its way to you anyway in the end. <laughs> right. But that's that's just how I see it.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think this is like a problem everywhere. It's very much related to dietary racism, and it would be nice if these giant monstrosities like Wegmans like Whole Foods can do more instead of just optically you know like I I recognize that there's a lot of healthy foods available at these places a lot of plant-based foods but that's not going to do very much if they're only reaching people who might even have the means to go further for it in the first place so let's switch gears and I want to hear about the food that slaps program. Can you tell us about it?
2: Yeah, um, that's one of the programs that we're hoping to be able to implement. And it's really just kind of trying to use a term. um, If if people don't know what the term slaps means, it just means that it's good. Like how um, way back in the days, people would say, oh, food, that's the bomb or something. So now just culturally, um, we're just wanting to use that term to connect with people because it's changed now. They say, oh, something's good. They'll say that slaps, you know.
1: Oh, good to know. Thank you. I'm taking notes because I'm never up (laughs) on what people are saying. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it changes so fast, you know, but they'll say, uh, you know, that Impossible Whopper slaps, you know, a Burger King if they like it, you know. So for people to, um, you know, to kind of speak in terms culturally that people will get. We're trying to go in to different communities where culture matters and it does. So we, we'd like to um have pop up events and, you um, using that as kind of like our slogan and offer people free print-based items to try, give people information about things that are accidentally vegan like we were talking about. Hopefully also one day even start a mobile food pantry so that we can just um, drive to these places because right now what we're thinking with the pop-up events is to do it at the corner store where people are locally. It's just going directly into the neighborhood. I mean, we don't want to kind of do this in places where we're not getting to the people that we want to get to. So we want to just go in there. And we want to meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And I know that under the Food That Slaps program, there's free grocery giveaways and health-related pop-up events and also hosting events at community centers like churches and bodegas. I think that's really cool. How do you plan on getting people there? Like, what is going to appeal to folks who would benefit from the food that slaps program we're just
2: giving away people giving free stuff to people so, <laughs> so yeah so that that, that that alone yeah got it yeah. <laughs> yes we Still, um, strategically, have to figure out. I mean, churches and community centers are easier. Corner stores and bod- bodegas and things like that. We can advertise. We can just show up there and literally pop up, which is what we may want to do because, you know, I want to keep people safe as well. And like I said, it's a complex situation. Some events, like at a church or community center, may be more appropriate to say, you know, we'll be here this date, date, date and time. Other places, like corner stores and bodegas, you never know kind of what's happening and what, what other people are thinking about if, you know, just to be honest, to say we're going to be here the same time, you know, giving away free stuff, sometimes there can be activity going on or could take place that we may not want to have meet us there. So those places we may just pop up, they're always frequented by members of the community. So we'll just be there to give away our stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, cool. That's amazing. How are you working with restaurants in underserved areas? So
2: we are planning to, and I say planning because a lot of it's preemptive because we're very new. So these are the the programs that we are going to be implementing. But we are going into restaurants and we're, because many times, like there are a lot of technical Restaurants, Jamaican restaurants in these communities. There are a lot of restaurants serving Hispanic foods and things like that. And I'll go in there. I went into a Jamaican restaurant. I thought it was really cool because she had a sign in her window that said, just pay as much as you can. So I just wanted to, you know, for whatever you wanted. So I am just asking her a little bit about that. And then I said, hey, do you have any vegan items on your menu? And she said, um, well, Not really, she said, I have to learn more about that, find out more about that. And um, right now people just kind of get like cabbage and rice, I just kind of thought to myself, that's boring. You know what I mean? So we could basically go to these restaurants, say, go back to that restaurant and take her some jackfruit, maybe a recipe to make some curry jackfruit, just to give them menu guidance. And there are also some restaurants that are already doing that here. I don't know if you've ever heard of a restaurant called Alice Kitchen. I'd be mean to connect with them because I think if we can connect with some people that are already doing that, they can also help with getting guidance to others. Yeah,
1: from what I'm understanding it's like a two-way street. There's restaurants like the one you just mentioned that could have more vegan options or a vegan option. And then on the flip side there's vegan restaurants that might be able to have even one item, hopefully more, that's like pay pay what you can, which it does remind me of what Cafe Gratitude did. I was living in LA for a while and Cafe Gratitude had like a community bowl that people were able to pay what they what they want. So it seems to be like both sides here.
2: Yeah, I've heard about something like that too. Um, I'm originally from the Southern Tier area of New York and there's a a little coffee shop there um, where they have something called a paint forward tree. And so people can like purchase a receipt basically you pay for it's like a blank receipt and they put it on this tree and if someone came in and needed that or needed to pay for the balance they just take that receipt and they get what they need you know i think things like that are so cool i love
1: it yeah i love that
2: yeah and so it it basically yeah it is like a a two-way street like what you're saying so i myself and my board members these are the things that we talk about that we want to do and we want to get out there and get started doing we just need the community to galvanize around us yeah
1: Truthfully, that sounds just um, like exactly the kind of project I've been wanting to get involved with. How does your small business loan program work?
2: We were also talking about the fact that these things are changing. We just kind of want to help with the pushing, make sure that the word gets to everyone. But I mean, if you think about McDonald's testing the Beyond Burger or you think about Burger King and the Impossible Burger and whatever they might be doing in the future, they are changing. So we also want to have other programs in place and one of them would be offering um, micro loans for small businesses. Um, Because say someone wanted to start a nonprofit like this, we could maybe give them a micro loan to pay their uh, filing fees. You know nice. what I mean? One we'll more about the money. Pay to file for your taxes and status. Pay mm-hmm. your filing fees to start a small business. So we want to help doing... You know, being able to offer those to people. And then our only requirement is that they hopefully can maybe pay that forward to someone else in the future because we don't want to get into a situation where we're expecting people to pay us back. It's not what right. this is about. We want to give people things and give people resources and give people help they need. Because I think when you get into, you know, loans that have to be paid back, it's just gonna be another albatross around someone's neck that is another thing that just only fosters more negative outcomes.
1: Yeah. And I mean, this is an interesting time to be interviewing you because you are just starting this. I know that you do have ideas for future programs. You mentioned a few of them. You mentioned the food pantry, which I'm so excited about. I would love, I would love to help with that too. Are there any other projects that like are up your sleeve? I know you want to work with schools, like what's going on?
2: Yeah, so we definitely want to. um, When it comes to restaurants and giving them that menu item guidance for plant based items, we would like to start our um, plant based restaurant week here in Rochester. So, say um, a restaurant put a plant based item on their menu, maybe during that week they could feature it on the menu, they could offer it at a discount. We could have other restaurants that are already vegan feature something for that week and just bring attention to it in that way. And then, when it comes to schools, I mean, you mentioned coming from L.A. I mean, I don't know. You probably heard, I'm sure, about Gavin Newsom just investing like $700 million in schools in California for plant-based menu items to be at school menus. Um, Mayor Eric Adams in New York City uh, did the same thing with offering plant-based items to students. So we just feel like that that's something that we should be able to do here. And the school district in Rochester is a whole nother story. I mean, but it can only help. I would think students to be able to. And, and the most um, complaints that you have when it comes to something like that is that they're not offering the right thing that students want, blah, 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 blah. They have some issues with that in New York City. But there are some districts that have done it well. And I think Portland is one of them that I read. So maybe we could give some guidance on that, you know, and show some models that are actually working. But it's just, yeah, another way to, to help uh, get the message out there. Totally.
1: Do you ever focus or do you ever bring in environmental and animal rights messages? How are are they received? or, Or do we do we just kind of deal with the like, in front of us emergency to begin with?
2: Well, right now that's kind of how we're looking at it. It's like the immediate need. But of course, those things play into it. I mean, when I first went vegan, it was because I read Alicia Silverstone's book. That first book, she wrote, it was like 2010. It was like a, a kind diet or whatever. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so I was always looking for different diets and things like that. And then I read that just made sense to me where she said, you know, milk is bad for your body, animal products are bad for your body, you know, dairy, meat. Um, and she explained it in such an easy way for me to understand. And then later for me, I kind of thought about the um, animal rights aspect of it and um, the ethical aspect that there is. Um, for And by the way, our logo, that is on purpose. It says everyone's value is equal not everyone altogether, everyone, because now we have come to also that point where one of my board members and you know, animal activism is a big thing for him. And that's another thing we want to kind of have diversity of thought from the organization. But I think now I'm just starting off with what we're trying to do is getting that message out there. And then I feel like the rest will come with the evolution of it. And so right now we have to, you know, just kind of focus on getting people to to kind of even understand our message, you
1: know, and kind of align with it. I totally think that's the right way to go. And I'm just utterly thrilled to hear about all of your work. I know you're growing so much. How can people learn more about your work, follow you, and support your efforts?
2: Oh, thank you so much for mentioning that. Yeah, they they can go to our website at equal value for All dot wordpress.com and when you get there you can click on ways to help and it'll show you all the different ways right now we have a Fundraising campaign with um, t shirts that are really cool. Um, like we were just talking about earlier, one of them says, uh, I love plant based food that slaps. <laughs> so you can go look at all the different um, messages that we have. And then if, when you purchase a t shirt, 100% of the profits go to uh, black, brown, and diverse plant based people for equity. We also have a little like children's cookbook on there. It's uh, called uh, Five Freakishly Fun Plant Based Shortcuts to Food Your Kids Will Love. And it's got like, um. I'll just tell you one of the recipes in there. It's got like one of those little hacks. Like, um, I don't know if you saw um, quite a while ago, but there was this thing online where people would take like a box cake mix. And a lot of those are accidentally vegan, by the way. And they would just put in a can of soda or use a can of coconut milk. That's all you need. You basically make your cake. (laughs) So there (laughs) are little like few shortcuts in there that kids would like and that are plant-based. But the profits are all coming to us. So anyway, you can... You, you know, you'd like to contribute to us if you'd like to get something in return for your contribution, that's one way. Another way is to simply donate to us. But we do have to say that we're only able to solicit donations in New York state because that's the only state that we are currently registered in as a charity. By law, you have to be registered in any state that you solicit donations in. There are like nine states, I think, where it's not required. Um, Iowa, Idaho, Delaware, I know it's on Wyoming, Nebraska. Those are a few, we have them listed on our website. You'll see that all under um, Ways to Help. We are currently still in the process of filing for tax exempt status. So you would, once you receive that status, um, need to consult with a tax professional if you just gave us a donation where you wanted to receive that induction and uh, find out whether you would be eligible for that. But we're currently in the process of filing for that. So. So what is the website again? It's
1: equal value for all. Equal value for all. Okay.
2: Yeah. Dot WordPress.com. And we are currently on Facebook in the process of getting all the social media together. And by the time this airs, you'll have that information from me for your viewers. So you can hopefully post all the links to that on your, your website as well.
1: Yeah, um, definitely. We'll, we'll post everything in the show notes that we can. And, and that's really amazing. I'm definitely going to buy that t shirt. today probably and truly whatever you need just feel free to reach out by the way I I don't want to be giving bad advice here but I do think that with the solicitations I think that the what you find in the books is a little bit antiquated because the nonprofit laws existed before the internet did so I think that as long as you're not doing physical mailings in people's mailboxes it's perfectly okay to like you know, solicit over email or or social media. Okay.
2: Oh, you know, I think that that's so funny because I was thinking that. I thought to myself, people can just go on uh, the New York State Charities Bureau, search for our name and see that we're listed as a charity. So that must be antiquated because at some time they yeah. must want you to be listed in every state so that a person could search for you in every state. But when right. you, anyone could search the New York State, website and still see us there. So
1: that does make sense. Yeah. Right. And also, I think that there are thresholds for soliciting. So if you raise like more than $20,000 in a particular state, for example, and this varies state to state, so it's it's annoyingly confusing, but you only need to register in it. Like, for example, we have a large donor in New Jersey, so we register in New Jersey as well. but most we could talk about this offline too if you ever want to chat about it because our hen house is a nonprofit and so i have definitely been through all of that and i know it's very confusing but things like this are especially confusing anyway i'm getting completely off track here but i just want to reiterate for our listeners that we will include all of the links that you said in the show notes and so that people can find you and follow you online it's equal value for all.wordpress.com And I hope that you stay on with me a little bit for the bonus content, Lisa. But thank you so much for spending time with our hen house today. And I really appreciate all that you're doing so much. Oh, no
2: problem. Thank you so much for having me, Jasmine.
1: Greetings listeners, just a reminder that if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month or $100 a year at OurHenHouse.org donate.
0: Also, if you are a flock member, please join us for our flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have inspiring guests and great conversations about activism and animals and life in general.
1: So if you're a member of the Flock, check out that Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And if you write to info at henhouse.org, you can also set up a one-on-one conversation with me too, which I hope you do, because I always have a lot of fun and I want you to also.
0: And thanks so much for joining us in our mission to change the world for animals. Bye. Anxiety surprising. Wegmans should continue to ignore PETA. All right, this is an article that I have kind of a personal interest in. And it's from Watt Poultry. And the reason I have a personal interest is because it has to do with Wegmans Grocery Store, which is a very big deal up here in Rochester, New York, where I live. And it's a chain. Uh, It's not a nationwide chain, but it's in a bunch of different states. And, you know, I've always had kind of a dislike of Wegmans even though it is, you know, it's a very good grocery store. It's a little more upscale than Tops or whatever. And that not quite at the Whole Foods uh, level, but you get where you get where I'm going. But years and years ago, Wegmans used to have its own battery cage facilities. And some activists broke into one and took out some chickens and Film did some filming. That was this was a long time ago, way before the current efforts of direct action everywhere, and they were. And Wegman's just really, really went after them, and they have enormous influence with the local prosecutor. and And they were prosecuted, and the one who did not plead out ended up going to prison. I really make. And now that I'm talking about it, I'm I'm mad all over again. Anyway, that doesn't have anything to do with what's going on now. I digress. There's a little animal rights history there. So what's going on now is this Plainville Farms turkey situation, which you may have heard of. And it has to do with an undercover investigation done by PETA. And, And they went in and they found... Uh, horrendous, horrendous abuse. And, you know, what happened, as so often happens, is that the people who worked there were charged with crimes, crimes which they committed, horrific cruelty, mistreatment of the turkeys, and 130 charges were filed against the farm workers. No charges were filed against the, uh, the executives or the company. And which, you know, I hate to see this happen this way. Uh, the, the company should should be charged when this happens. But of course, it's always the way. So now, uh, apparently Wegmans is a buyer of Plainville Farms Turkey. And so PETA has decided to do these demonstrations against Wegmans, which is, you know, a fairly classic way. As this article points out, this is from Watt Poultry, I think I mentioned that, a grocer wants to keep selling Plainville Farms turkey, it shouldn't have to answer to disruptive animal rights organization. I'm not sure why. <laughs> like, okay, I guess that's what you think. This is by one Roy Graber. And he points out that PETA is continuing its push to get Wegmans to remove Plainville Farms turkey, and talks about the charges that were filed. And and. PETA pointed out that PETA even went so far as to suggest Wegmans should not only go themselves to see what's going on at Plainville Farms, but should take a PETA representative with them to farm visits. Excuse me," says Roy. "Okay, okay, it seems like a good idea to me." Wegmans has not responded to PETA's protest, so they 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 staged an actual uh, protest outside of a, a store in Rochester, New York, and. Undoubtedly, uh, according to Roy, cause stress to store employees and scared away potential customers. Well, good. <laughs> That's the idea. <laughs> Isn't that the whole purpose here? Isn't that why Wegmans should be concerned here? They've certainly chased me away from any possibility that I am going back to Wegmans. Uh, I have plenty of other places to shop. I have a lovely food co-op that I can shop at. According to Roy, we can deduce that Wegman selling any animal-based food product is unacceptable to PETA. Well, you know, I suppose that's true. But you know, we're animal rights activists, so we're used to like uh, targeting specific things instead of just pointing out that the whole sordid business should be abolished. Indulging PETA simply wouldn't be a productive use of Wegman's time. Like, why is he going on and on about this? Why is it so important? They really do not want. They do not want these stories engaged upon. They want it to die so badly. Uh, So apparently Wegmans is cooperating with uh, this, this idea that they should not care. Of course, Plainville Farms is saying, You know, the usual defense, oh, my God, we're so shocked that our employees would do this. Uh, An actual, that wasn't an actual quote, the quote is, we are fully cooperating with law enforcement in order to investigate the PETA allegations and fully support the prosecution of any individuals found to be involved in the mistreatment of any of our turkeys. Regardless of the outcome of that investigation, none of the individuals addressed in the PETA allegations work for Plainville Farms any longer. You know, so as usual, they just wait for an animal rights organization to do the investigation that they don't do and then and then pretend they're shocked. So in addition to terminating the 13 workers, according to this article, the company purchased body cameras to monitor all live operations team members. Well, that seems like a good idea, doesn't it? With the surveillance footage, wait for it being routinely monitored internally, and by outside third-party animal welfare experts. Well, you know, put it on the web, guys. Just put it on the web. Why don't we, you know, maybe we should be able to make up our own minds about how you're treating your turkeys. But according to Roy, if Wegmans believes Plainville Farms has the turkey's best interest in mind, that's good enough for me. Yeah, Plainville Farms really has the turkey's best interest in mind. That vomit. I just hate them all, you know? All right, this is from Drovers. Moo Intelligence, Google's new sustainability initiative misrepresents US beef. This is by Greg Henderson. And this is about this new initiative from Google that they are going to offer the ability to view information about the environmental impact of certain choices. Not just food, has to do with clothing and cars and whatever he points out, quote, despite all of those nerds on the payroll, Google is shorthanded on moo intelligence. Like what does that even mean? I I don't know. And it just insulted America's cowboys with its new sustainable feature. Like people in the beef industry just love to call themselves cowboys. They just love it. Oh, who do you think you're fooling? So According to to this article, the information that Google is going to be posting includes information about how Google evaluates beef, which is to say Google's metrics are heavily slanted against beef. Then he just goes on and on to talk about how slanted they are. I just want to like to, like why would Google do that? <laughs> Google's in isn't in the alternative to beef industry. They don't care. They like no motive is pointed out for why they would be. I'm sure they all eat, or most everybody at Google eats beef. Like, uh, but of course, this quickly drew the ire of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, which denounced Google's initiative as an attempt to bias consumers against beef. Yeah, they just they they just have a thing about beef. <laughs> they they want to bias people against it. Quote, Google is using its billions of dollars of resources. Now, wait a second. I know Google has billions of dollars of resources, but are they really spending billions on this particular thing? To target cattle producers and ignore the science that demonstrates beef's sustainability and value to the environment. Yeah, that's from the president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. That's one of those uh, aforementioned cowboys. And they just go on and on about their nonsensical numbers that they think beef is contributing when everybody else in the world, except for the industry, agrees that beef has got to go. According to them, eliminating all livestock in the U.S. and removing beef from the diet would only reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 0.36% globally. Aside from the fact that their numbers are undoubtedly off, you're comparing, like you're taking just U.S. and just... Livestock or just beef, it's not really clear. And then taking that and subtracting it from every single greenhouse gas emitted by anything in the entire world and using that percentage. So even if, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure their numbers are still cooked, even if they were real numbers, that's a ridiculous kind of comparison to me. Finally, California's Prop 12, Nyman Purdue agrees. I just thought this was an interesting article since we are talking a lot about Prop 12 recently which is, of course, the initiative in California that, you know, puts certain limits on what meat can be sold in California and has the, the pork industry up in arms and up in the Supreme Court uh, trying to argue that that should not be allowed. And this is just kind of an interesting article showing that there's a lot of dispute within the industry about whether this arguing is a good idea. It's talking about Nyman Ranch, you know, which now is owned by Purdue Farms. And how Nyman Ranch came out in favor of Prop 12 and filed a brief in the Supreme Court. So there is a split within the um, within the industry. According to this, Nyman Perdue, I'm not sure Perdue filed a brief, but, you know, Nyman is owned by Perdue. But that doesn't mean there can be a split within the companies. So, I, so I'm not sure of that. But anyway, Nyman Perdue has staked out a position supporting Prop 12, which outlaws constrictive hog gestation stalls, among other animal protein restrictive raising practices. That's a nice expression, isn't it? Animal protein restrictive raising practices. These animals, they more and more, they just call them protein. They don't call them creatures. You know, the article points out that the uh, other than the pork industry, you know, everybody just kind of like complied with the law. It's my feeling that they probably knew that what they were doing was completely unacceptable to the American public. So they were kind of trying to get on a new a new abusive practice that would not that would be in compliance with, with Prop 12 and wouldn't set so many people on fire. And if you can get the whole industry to be doing it, then, you know, they're not in competition with each other. But the pork industry is definitely not on board with that. They're fighting, fighting, fighting. And this guy, uh, Matt Graves, who writes the Meet Your Markets column, He doesn't think it's such a good idea. Unfortunately, our meat and poultry industry has been rife with those who have tried to mandate that all who raise animals for food do so to the lowest common denominator. Those who dared to step outside of the ordinary and do something different were castigated. But many of those who wanted to do it differently persevered, resulting in a plethora of natural, organic, grass-fed, free range. And now there are those who want to raise hogs and layer hens in larger spaces than those raised conventionally. And he thinks this is all to the good that they, this hasn't harmed other conventional meat and poultry companies. And these outlier, quote unquote, outlier companies return more dollars to the farmers and ranchers while giving consumers a wider choice of animal proteins. So I don't know, you know, what, do, what does one think about this? Is he right? And if so, what does that mean for animals? Like, like obviously, if we can get them out of a worse circle of hell and, and make their lives a little bit better uh, or a little less worse, that's a good thing. But is it really true that, that people are buying this bullshit that hogs or, or pigs who were raised just because the gestation crate isn't used are not treated horrifically cruelly? Uh, you know, sometimes it would be nice if we could just bring a little sanity to this conversation. But I guess that's not going to happen. But it is interesting, I think, to see this split within the meat industry about how to handle these issues. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties.
1: Well, that's it for this week's show. If you like the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end-of-year fundraising. We're excited to announce that if you contribute between now and December 31st, your donation will be tripled, dollar for dollar, up to $20,000. That means that with your donation, plus our barnyard benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor, we're hoping to raise $60,000 for the year end. This is the time where we do the vast majority of fundraising for our entire year. If you're not already part of the flock we invite you to join for ten dollars a month or one hundred dollars a year you'll get some really cool perks including weekly bonus content access to our private flock facebook group which will soon be upgraded into a brand new platform and an invitation to our monthly flock friday zoom meetings for fun and engaging conversations with me marianne and others in the flock you will also have an opportunity to meet with me for one-on-one sessions to discuss your veganism, your activism, or whatever's on your mind. Plus, if you donate $100 or more, I will send you a personalized video message to show you my undying love and gratitude. And, brand new this year, if you donate $250 or more, you will get that plus a really cool Our Hen House pin. So if you appreciate Our Hen House, if you believe in our mission to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, if you find community and solace in our shows and resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of indie media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be tripled. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org donate. That's ourhenhouse.org donate. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also like us on Facebook, where you can also leave us a review or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicky Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music, thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.